everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the It's a Crime O'Clock Summer podcast. This is episode 111. Today, I will be talking about the case of the Duffield family, which took place in Olathe, Kansas in the 1980s. My sources for today's episode are an episode of Ice Cold Killers, season 4, episode 8, titled Silent Night, Find a Grave, The Cinemaholic, UPI.com, and KMBC.com. As usual, all of my sources will be linked in today's show notes. One winter's night, a fury-fueled assault. The crime seems really bad, with more questions than answers. Two siblings attacked, a third missing. The family was completely destroyed. Just total confusion. I mean, freaked out like any father. Everybody was thinking about their own children. We really have got to pull all the stops here. To- John and Carol Duffield settled with their family in Olathe. They were both hardworking people. Carol worked as a nurse, and John worked as a car salesman. Their daughter, Kelly, was born on August 13, 1965. By 1983, she was a high school senior. Paul was the middle child, born on August 23, 1967, and Janelle, born on April 8, 1970. Janelle was only 12 at the time. She liked to act and play softball, and they were a very tight-knit family. But on January 28, 1983, their worlds changed. Carol was working at the hospital, and John and the three kids were sleeping in the house. Around 5 a.m., John woke up to noises coming from downstairs. Paul had been sleeping on the couch. He had been beaten and was semi-conscious. John tried to call 911, but the phone was dead, so he ran next door to the neighbors. John came back to the house to check on Kelly and Janelle. Janelle had been badly beaten. She had injuries to her head and face. Kelly was nowhere to be found. Paul had severe wounds to his head, but was still alive. Janelle had similar wounds, but was deceased. Janelle's skull had been shattered. The murder weapon had been a heavy object. Paul was rushed to the hospital. Kelly was still not found inside the house, and there was no blood in her room. The police believed that Kelly could have been injured and was able to escape from the house. They also thought she could have either voluntarily went with the killer or been abducted. Carol was working when she heard an announcement at work about several people needing assistance at her address. Paul was rushed to the hospital and was being treated. The police immediately went out searching for Kelly. Due to the cold temperatures, Kelly didn't have a lot of time if she was somewhere out there alive. The police asked the community for help in locating Kelly. ATVs and helicopter searches were done. Janelle had been sick the day before she died, so Carol had put a plastic covering on her bed. Janelle had been pulled off her bed during the attack, and so had the plastic cover. This bit of information was kept secret from the public. The crime scene appeared to be sexually motivated, as Janelle's legs had been spread apart. There were also bloody handprints found on her body. On one of the walls, the police found a large blood smear. That part of the wall was removed so that the smear could be tested. There was no sign of a struggle inside the house. The house had been mostly left intact. There was no evidence of forced entry, and Janelle and Paul had been attacked while they slept. The back door had been found unlocked. The killer had left a shoe print in the snow. The police attempted to get a cast of the print, but due to the cold temperatures, it was deteriorating, and they weren't able to get a cast of the print. 
They also found that the phone lines had been tampered with. They hadn't been cut, but the police put out information to help the public in hopes that the killer would slip up. Paul survived his surgery but went into a coma after. The only person that was immediately eliminated was Carol, as she had been at work. Many thought that it was odd that John hadn't heard anything. John was angry that he was being accused of the crime. He said he had gone to bed at his usual time. Carol left for work, and he had left the TV on as he usually did. John said the TV being on could have masked the attacks of his family. The police did their own experiment. They put the TV on while another officer made noise. Police couldn't hear anything. There was no blood found on any of John's clothing, and he also agreed to take a polygraph test. John was eventually cleared as a suspect, but many in the area still thought he could have attacked his family. During their search for Kelly, Olathe suffered from a major snowstorm and it delayed the searches. The police started to wonder if Kelly was somehow involved or the main target. John and Carol were adamant that Kelly was not involved. Investigation, the police learned that Kelly did have a boyfriend. He denied being involved and said he didn't know where Kelly was. His alibi was that he was in bed sleeping. The police also interviewed Kelly's friends. Kelly didn't seem to have any enemies or no one had a grudge against her. She was described as a very kind person. A neighbor did come forward and said they had seen someone in the neighborhood that did, they didn't recognize. The neighbor agreed to come in to do a composite sketch, and the sketch was put out to the media. After more than a week in a coma, Paul regained consciousness. The police interviewed him, but he couldn't remember anything due to his head injuries. The man believed to be the one in the composite sketch came forward. He said his car had broken down, which is why he was walking in the neighborhood, and he was eventually ruled out as a suspect. About 10 days after the attacks on the Duffield family, two kids were playing in the snow and found what looked like a body. They told their parents who called the police. It was the body of a female and believed to be Kelly. She was covered in snow and frozen. Near her body, the police found a sledgehammer and it was believed to have been the murder weapon. The location of Kelly's body suggested that the killer was a local. Kelly was posi positively identified. She also had wounds to her head. The medical examiner was able to rule that the weapon was the same used in all three attacks. The medical examiner also revealed that Kelly was six weeks pregnant at the time of her death. Kelly's boyfriend was re-interviewed. He said he wasn't aware that Kelly was pregnant. He and his parents allowed the police to search his home, but there was nothing found. Sadly, the case went cold. Three months passed and the police received a phone call about an assault on a woman outside of a restaurant. She said a man came up to her and tried to get her to go with him. She said the man took her purse. While the police were talking to the woman, the man actually drove by. The man was identified as Michael Cade. He was 21 at the time. He ended up tossing the woman's purse outside the window and told the police where it was. It was close to where Kelly's body was found. Michael lived with his parents at the time and lived less than a mile from the lake where Kelly was found. Michael was held in jail. He didn't have any connection to the Duffield family. The police searched Michael's background and learned that he had a history of breaking into a local school. He had killed the class's pet rabbit, which is common for killers to escalate after killing animals. Michael also had a his history of disabling phone lines at other residences. Michael was interviewed. The sledgehammer from the crime scene was placed on the desk. Michael appeared to be nervous and kept glancing at the hammer. Michael said on the night of the murders, he was driving around and ended up at the Duffield's home. Michael said he had a vision. He said his vision included that he disabled the phone wires. 
He said he had used a screwdriver to pull the wires loose. The police knew the wires hadn't been cut. Michael said his vision included walking through an unlocked back door. He saw a young man lying on the sofa, and Paul had been attacked on the couch. He then went into a little girl's room. He said there was a lot of blood and a rubber cover on the floor. The police hadn't mentioned that to the public. Michael then found Kelly in her room. He abducted and raped Kelly and said he would keep her alive. It's believed that he let her out of the car, came up behind her, and killed her because he couldn't let her live because she could ID him. Michael eventually admitted that he had killed Kelly and Janelle and that it wasn't just a vision. He was charged with first-degree murder, aggravated battery, aggravated assault, murder, and rape. He was also charged with aggravated robbery and burglary. Michael pled guilty and was sentenced to life in prison. He claimed he chose the house at random, but some people believed he may have seen Kelly in town or at her work and followed her. John and Carol have both since passed away. John died from cancer. Paul passed away on March 30th, 2022. Michael Cade still remains in prison. However, he has said many times that he wants to get out. I think Michael should never get out of prison, even though it has been decades since the attack and murders of the Duffield family. I believe he would kill again. Michael had no connection to the Duffield family and just decided to enter their home and kill almost the whole family. He killed and ruined an almost an entire family, ruined Paul's life, and left many to think that John had killed his family. So therefore, he should rot away in prison. Book recommendation for this week is Her by Jane Jesmond. You think you've heard my story before. At 27, I'm too young to be a widow. I'm trying my best to start over, though. New city, new job, running my own little shop. I try to fade into the background where I can, but the police won't let me disappear completely. There are too many unanswered questions about the night my husband died. You think you know me. I even have a new lodger, Elizabeth. She's friendly, but definitely not a friend. Beautiful, too. Tall and slim, with the sort of squishy blonde hair I've always coveted. She smiles at me when we pass on the stairs. It occurs to me that when I don't know the first thing about her but you're so, so wrong. If I were to tell you what happened to us next, you wouldn't believe me. You might believe Elizabeth. She's the type who people trust until it's too late. I guess you'll have to find out for yourself. I definitely like the plot of this book. I also like the narrator, but it was hard to tell what was true and what wasn't, but I guess that's the point of the book. It was definitely a thriller, and that kept me guessing until the very end. I give this book an 8 out of 10. I hope you all enjoyed today's episode. I'd love to hear your opinions on it. Please subscribe to my blog, follow me on Instagram at It's Crime O'Clock Somewhere blog pod, Twitter at It's Crime O'Clock, email me at It's Crime O'Clock Somewhere at gmail.com, buy me a coffee, and please leave me a five-star rating and review if you're enjoying this podcast. I'll be back next week with an all-new case and book recommendation, and remember, it's Crime O'Clock Somewhere.